Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. Last month, we spoke with Dr. Andrew Martin, Chair of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine at Deborah, about the current understanding of COVID's impact on the lungs, who's most at risk and why, and how Deborah's new post-COVID recovery program is helping patients get closer to their pre-pandemic health. This month, we continue this informative conversation with Dr. Martin. Here's Rasa Kay. I'm Rasa Kay, and thanks for joining us for more discussion with pulmonologist Dr. Andrew Martin about COVID-19's effect on the lungs and about Deborah's new post-COVID recovery program. So is COVID lung damage worse than smoking, or how, how does it compare? It's different. It's not the same. Smoking-related lung damage is something that goes on over a long period of time, and it varies in different patients. So you can have all sorts of kinds of symptoms with smoking that may not correlate to abnormalities on CAT scans or lung function tests. So if you have some kind of a chronic lung issue that maybe requires an inhaler like like asthma, in this time of COVID, should you be upping your your inhaler usage? Is there anything in particular if you are if you have some kind of a lung issue that you should be doing to protect yourself against COVID? I don't think so. First of all, the general measures, Um, wearing masks, more importantly for yourself, making sure when you're out in public that other people are wearing masks. And it's a very easy virus to get, but it's not a hard virus not to get if people behave themselves. Um, So that's number one. Now, the question of medicines, if you already take medicines for COPD or asthma, particularly steroids, you may be on most commonly, you might be on an inhaled steroid, which is a low dose from a total body point of view. Uh, but we do know that inhaled steroids in COPD have a slight increased risk for pneumonia, classic pneumonia. So far, the data that I've seen suggests that they are at least even Stephen, possibly a little protective, maybe, for severe disease. But I think so far, it looks like if you have COPD or you have asthma, that your regimen, your, your medical regimen does not necessarily need to be modified based on the fact of COVID because you still want to handle your disease. It's not going to do you any good if you avoid COVID but let your asthma get so out of control that you end up in the ER for your asthma. For all the people who ride it out at home and there's some lung involvement to whatever degree, what's the best way to handle it and what's the best way to absolutely not handle it? Yeah, that's a tough one. It's a judgment call for any particular patient. It's always going to be Manage it, your symptoms, as you normally would. Use Whatever peak. your trigger would be. So would you use a peak flow meter and say, that's it, I need, I need my rescue inhaler and rely on that? Well, you know, peak flow meters have their place, but symptoms are the most important. Um, a lot of people who use, as you said, rescue inhalers, the idea that using it too much is bad for you uh, is something we argue a lot about. Is it bad in and of itself, or is that just a marker of disease that needs to be paid more attention to? And, and everybody has to have that question. Uh, if your inhaler is working and it's helping uh, and it helps to the degree that it normally helps and, okay, you have some symptoms and maybe you're using two or three times a day and you feel comfortable with that, maybe you don't have to necessarily call your doctor or go to the urgent care or the ER. On the other hand, if you're needing to use it every two hours, you know, even for half a day or, you know, you should think maybe I should call somebody. It's a matter of what's normal for me 
Yeah, my medicine's working as I expect them to. Are there other things making me feel sick besides simple asthma symptoms? Even a healthy person that gets COVID and they think they have COVID, right? They get some fever. They get some body aches. Uh, but otherwise, they're okay. You manage it at home until you can't, and then you get checked out. Do you think it's good to have a pulse oximeter at home? It can be helpful. It can be helpful, but it can, uh, it can be misleading. It can make some people with chronic lung disease that already have low oxygen levels think they're sicker than they are. It's also something you shouldn't rely on as a false sense of security. Uh, a normal pulse oximeter doesn't mean you're not sick. You can be very, very, very sick and still have a perfectly good oxygen level. So again, you have to understand what it means and you have to take it in the context of other things going on. So tell us about Deborah's new post-COVID recovery program. I wanted people to know that if they had had COVID and they had recovered, they had stabilized to some extent, they've gotten over their acute illness. And then anywhere from six weeks to three months or six months later, they still feel like they're short of breath. I wanted people to know that we're here and that we're seeing people in person face-to-face and we can test them and we can measure their lung function do what's necessary to investigate their symptoms. Um, This is a clinical program. Um, And again, it's for people who've recovered but feel like, hey, I'm not breathing right or I have other shortness of breath that I don't think is is where I should be. Do you use the term long hauler? Because you haven't used it yet with me. You know, if it's been said to me, I know it's out there. I'm not sure what that means. I've dealt with long haulers my whole career from other things. You know, we got long callers from cigarette smoking. We have long callers from severe pneumonia. I don't see that to myself useful as a diagnosis because it's, it's very general. It really means, you know, you still feel crappy, you know, a couple of months later. That's, you know, so I, I don't use it as a specific term. You know, in the course of setting up this clinic, uh, I've, I've gone on webinars Uh, with people from places like Yale, and I've spoken to people at Temple about their COVID program. Uh, Again, I'm a small clinical program here. But the message I'm getting from from people even in academics full-time is still, you know, because we're so early in this and because we still haven't defined what may or may not be specific, I have to be a good internist. I mean, at heart, any pulmonologist or cardiologist is an internist. And we investigate symptoms. We, the, the, the business of an intern is the diagnosis of illness. So we're still all taking the symptoms we're presented with, and then we're evaluating them as we normally would in any other time. So if someone has shortness of breath, we may do an X-ray. We may do a pulse oximeter. We may do lung function tests. We may do an echocardiogram or some kind of exercise test. By the same token, if someone comes in with the brain fog, feels that their cognitive ability isn't what it used to be. We have to evaluate that the same way we normally would. Uh, There are many things that can cause those kinds of things. So are the people coming into your program coming in with more than just lung issues or coming in with other post-COVID syndromes or or symptoms that aren't lung-specific? Some. Some. You know, people tell me about a rash or an itch or uh, a funny sensation in their leg Brain fog, again, that's a, that's a term that it was not something you've, you, you applied to patients before COVID. But feeling foggy, feeling... Now, what could that be? I mean, that, can be, that could be thyroid disease. Could, could it be, though, a function of low oxygen levels? 
Yes, absolutely. But again, the research on low oxygen levels is, is, is very complicated. And it's all wrapped up. A lot of it's been done in people with sleep apnea. There's a difference between being low oxygen all the time and having what we call intermittent hypoxia. Uh, the neurologic effects of that are still, we're still working on that. So yes, that could be, but, but, and you can have low normal, you can have low oxygen levels, but they're high enough to be, have you fully functional. So is it the thing that's causing the low oxygen that's causing the brain fog, or is it the low oxygen that's causing the brain fog? And certainly we have plenty of people who are complaining about some of these neurologic symptoms that are perfectly normal lungs and hearts, and they don't have low oxygen levels. And that's one of the first things I do with the patients that come in. One of the only tests I'm ordering on everybody is what's called a six-minute walk test, which is basically a test where you walk as fast as you can for six minutes. We measure the distance, and we measure your oxygen levels. And people come through that with flying colors and still say, you know, I'm still, I'm still not right. But then you have to look into it. it are you sleeping well? Are you exhausted? Uh, is, this, is this anxiety? Is this depression? Just published study from Britain, up to a third of patients COVID six months later have neurologic diagnoses. But the finding is the most common diagnoses are anxiety and mood disorders. Now, the question is, how many of us who didn't get COVID after this year are suffering from these things. There's so many things going on right now, particularly when it comes to cognitive ability. Again, the question is, are we seeing patients and diagnosing things that were there before COVID, but, but only came to light because people are paying more attention? So I've had a couple of patients come in and said, you know what, it sounds like you have sleep apnea. You probably had it two years ago. Let's look into that. Um, but I would still consider that a terrific reason for coming in. I sure. Mean, if you found out, you know, about something that, that can be managed that you just didn't know about before, yeah. it's still a great visit. Yeah. I have to remind myself and my colleagues that, yeah, maybe you're a cardiologist, maybe you're a pulmonologist, but you still have to be an internist. The quintessential question that an internist asks is what else could this be? Do you think a person who has had COVID should avoid things like heavy exercise or be much more attentive to ramping back up or you know just just how do you get yourself reconditioned after you've been that sick with possible lung involvement aside from low oxygen levels which can make it dangerous to exercise Lung disease almost never makes it dangerous to exercise When you say dangerous to exercise you're saying somebody'll just pass out on the treadmill or something like that yeah and when it comes to safety for exercise, it almost all lies in the heart. If you're doing things that are making you short of breath and your heart is okay, now either that's because you know it's okay because you've been tested or you're simply not having panic symptoms. You're not having chest pain. You're not having palpitations. You're not feeling like you're going to pass out. You get short of breath at the top of a flight of stairs and when you stop, it gets better within a couple of minutes and you're heavy breathing. There's a difference between heavy breathing and trouble breathing right? People with asthma have trouble breathing. They may cough, they may wheeze, or other things. Then there's heavy breathing. Now, people with even pulmonary fibrosis that is fixed, not changing, they're going to have heavy breathing. It's still good for them because that's where you improve things is on the heart side. So, so it's, again, it's a safety issue. But if it's a simple shortness of breath with exercise, it gets better with rest. Then if you don't do those things and you avoid them, they'll only get harder. That's normal human physiology. I use the example for my patients. If the most you ever do, the most you ever do, 
is you come home and you live on the second floor and you walk up that flight of stairs to the second floor and you never exert yourself more than that. And this is a normal person. You could do it a thousand days in a row and it's not going to get any better. Always going to make you short of breath. But if you stop doing it for a month, it's going to get harder. So everybody has to keep in mind that that's the thing about exercise. And again, I say to my patients often is if everybody was afraid to be short of breath with exercise, there'd be no such thing as athletes. Um, so danger signals, chest pain, palpitations, lightheadedness, yes, those are definite danger signals, and you definitely would want to have, have your heart checked out. But if it's simple, <sighs> I'm out of breath, and sit down for a minute or stop, and it gets better, then you keep going. A couple of questions about vaccines. People who have or are still suffering symptoms after COVID should get vaccinated. Absolutely. The variants we're hearing about, how worried should we be? How much urgency does that bring to the vaccination effort? Um, I think it brings a great amount of urgency, and I think we should be very worried. Um, this is not to say the sky is falling so far that uh, it seems that the, the data suggests that the vaccines are still protective against the variants, but we don't know. They, they, a new one may come along that it's not. And it really underscores this idea that, you know, if you, if you let this virus stay around, it's going to mutate. It's, it's concerning. Not that we won't be able to deal with it. I have, I have every confidence that if we get a variant that the current vaccines don't cover, they'll sequence the spike and they'll make mRNA that makes the spike and they'll give people a vaccine with the new spike. And we all know that the flu vaccine needs to be reformulated every year. So I don't think it's panic mode, but I think it's, it's concerning. If for no other reason that you know, the, the, the statistics seem to be fairly steady that 30% of us, including, unfortunately, healthcare workers, somehow don't plan to get the vaccine. It's very, that's a big reservoir of people. What that allows is this virus to circulate among people who are not vaccinated, lets them transmit it to each other, and lets it mutate. I mean, and there are people in other countries who would die to get the opportunity we have. And here we're arguing over this. So as for the post-COVID recovery program here at Deborah, where do people sign up? How do they find out more about it? How do they reach you? Well, they can, they can go to thebandeborah.org. There's things on the website or just being referred in through referrals and asking for the post-COVID recovery. If you've had COVID-19 infection, regardless of whether you were hospitalized or you've reached some kind of plateau, you're at least six weeks after either your diagnosis or your hospital discharge, and you feel like you want to have your lungs checked or your shortness of breath evaluated, then we can do that at Deborah. For, for this or really any other uh, lung problem, we're going to listen to you. We're going to evaluate you in person. Um, we are going to do testing that is appropriate for your complaint and your findings. Um, we're not doing a cookie cutter program here. And we will thoughtfully particularly evaluate whether there is something first that might be wrong with your lungs or your heart. And probably more importantly, is there something going on there that can be improved or fixed? That was pulmonologist Dr. Andrew Martin of Deborah Heart and Lung Center. And I'm Rasa Kay. We'll have another podcast on the first Wednesday of the month, and I hope you'll join us then. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah Doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at demanddeborah.org.